but he was the MVP. He was the scoring leader. He was defensive player of the year. He won the all-star dunk contest. He did everything but win a championship in that three. So a kind of a launch pad into all those other shoes and all the championships. I'm Justin Jay. As a photographer, I've gotten to shoot rock stars, hip-hop moguls, world-class athletes, and some other truly extraordinary subjects. I'm fascinated by the backstories and life experiences that help shape these compelling people. The right photograph can reveal quite a lot about someone, but some stories can't be told with just a picture. Sometimes you need to sit down, listen, and dig a little deeper. This is The Plug. We live in a world of compartmentalized fame. 20 years ago, it was unlikely that anyone could cultivate a fan base with hundreds of millions of fans without being known by the general public. But in today's social media landscape, influencers can create a massive worldwide network of followers, often without the knowledge of anyone that's outside of their niche community. If you don't believe me, just ask anyone over 40 who PewDiePie is. You're likely to either be a massive fan of today's guest or you have no idea who he is. But his contribution to modern culture goes well beyond simply a TikTok video or a YouTube tutorial. He's been a major force in the sneaker industry for decades and he's consistently pushed the boundaries of what's possible in footwear design. During his time at Nike, he collaborated with LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, and countless other legendary athletes to produce some of the most iconic and beloved sneakers of all time, from the Air Jordan to the Air Max. He's widely considered to be one of the most influential sneaker designers of all time, and he's quite literally the Michael Jordan of Jordans. So how did he help transform a utilitarian item meant to be worn on your feet into an entire sneaker culture where shoes have become a highly valuable commodity sold for thousands of dollars? We'll find out as we sit down for a chat with this college pole vaulting star come celebrated footwear designer. Today, innovator, patent holder, designer, and trusted collaborator to some of the most elite athletes on the planet, Mr. Tinker Hatfield. Tinker Hatfield, thank you so much for sitting down. I know we had some, some technical difficulties, but uh, we finally made it happen. I have technical, physical, mental difficulties. It's, you know, it's all, <laughs> it's all in line with the, how, I, how I operate. <laughs> um, so I found that you, you occupy a really interesting place in pop culture. And, you know, since we have booked this podcast, I've been doing kind of an informal poll of some of my friends asking if they knew who you are. And the responses tended to be very binary. It was either, are you kidding me? Oh my God, of course, he's legend. Or who is that? You know? <laughs> and, yeah. and I'm curious, like, you know, is that, is that cult status something that you find funny? I mean, how do you reconcile that? I, you know, I just don't, I just don't give it much thought. I guess if, Pressed, my impression would be there are some people that are really into design and really into sneakers. And uh, if you are, then you would probably be um, aware of who who I am and what I do. And then there's this this whole other part of our society. And I think that's true that that everybody's kind of fractured and you get interested in what you're interested in and maybe you tune out other things. I don't know. I mean, but 
But yeah, you're right. I can walk down the street in certain neighborhoods and just get overwhelmed or go to an airport, sign 40 autographs, or, or I could be, uh, and no one even notices. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's one or the other. That's, yeah. yeah, it's really fascinating. I feel like most people <laughs> are not in that category. Um, so I, I shot a book project recently and I spent a lot of time on the North Shore of Hawaii chronicling surf culture over there. Uh-huh. John John Florence is a two-time world champion, f- amazing, phenomenal surfer. He's been working with the same board designer, John Pizel, since basically his entire career. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the reasons that that partnership works so well is not just that John's a phenomenal surfer and an amazing test pilot, but he's really talented at being able to articulate minor design changes and how that affects the performance of the board. Right. That's not, that's not always a common trait among surfers. I mean, I think if you talk to shapers, a lot of times they'll say, yeah, sometimes surfers will come back and they'll just be like, yo, that board, that board doesn't work or something yeah. like that, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, the board that, sucks. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so I think that's why that collaboration works so well with the two of them. And they've been able to progress so much because they can actually do tests and see how a leads to B. Right. right. That said, I'm curious what your collaboration and what your process looked like working with Michael Jordan. Cause I know you mentioned in an interview that he didn't really open up and really kind of let you into his head and his heart until almost the Jordan 20. And you know, if that's the case, what did the process look like for the previous 16 shoes that you collaborated on? <laughs> well, I, um, you know, I, I think that he's a private person and he has to be, you know, and that's just what we, uh, I think we all observe with people who are that well-known and they, they, they tend to try and protect themselves, their family, whatever. But, um, no, I really actually got to know Michael quite well. I would stay at his house and hang, you know, and there'd always be somebody else there like Jay-Z or, or, uh, or, you know, some football, you know, you know, there were all kinds of people that, uh, were hanging around. And so, but when we would uh, sit down for a design session, uh, we both agreed that there'd be no one else in the room. And he really, really makes designing very easy because he actually likes the process, which is probably maybe what John John uh, does, but he also can articulate the differences or the new needs or some deficiency or some there's there's usually some very specific nugget of uh, of info that he would pass along to me and then that would allow me to of course then go back and then figure it out in in reacting to that conversation i would come up with something and then go back and show him and he's like oh yeah i love it because he he could see that we and he could try try the product on and, but he could see that his involvement had an impact on the design, and therefore things would then go forward smoothly. And that uh, I can tell you that he's rare. He's rare for uh, as a, and you, like you said, maybe it's others. There are a lot of surfers who might not do that, but John John does. And I would say that's true in probably every sport. That there are some athletes that really are dialed in, and they. They want to communicate and tell you what's going on and and get really specific. Kobe Bryant was like that, too. And that helps immensely, you know, in terms of improving performance. And then then, uh, of course, in our in our business, style starts to get kind of infused into that performance process. So the problem solving for performance is 
job number one. It is yeah. at Nike. It is for me. It, it was. It has been for Michael Jordan. And then you hope that it just ends up looking cool. And maybe because there's a second narrative that gets woven in. So the the collaborative paradigm that you were able to create with Michael Jordan, was that something that, that clicked right away or was there a real long ramp up process? Uh, it, it didn't click right away because um, Michael was actually a somewhat unhappy with the way things were going. I think just in general, the, you know, the Chicago Bulls were not that good for his first year or two. And he really made a sensation, sensation though, uh, because he, he was obviously really good right off the bat, but they didn't win so much. And, uh, and he was wearing the Jordan one. Of, and then when he w- switched for the second year in the Jordan two, which was a very technical shoe, but it was, I don't think that he had as much input into that shoe and he didn't have any input into the first shoe because he was new. He was young, he was new, and they were like, man, things had to happen really fast. And he broke his foot. And I think that that upset him and maybe he, I, I don't really know if he truly blamed the shoe, but you could infer that maybe the shoe had was like in the back of his mind. Maybe yeah. wasn't wasn't quite the right shoe. And just for the for the sake of the listeners who who may not know, you did not work on those two shoes, correct? I did not. I did not. I was the corporate architect, but I but I was close with the designers um, because I was doing work, and I would talk to the designers all the time about uh, their spaces or their uh, showrooms or stores or or presentations of you know whatever. And so uh, I knew I knew all the designers and uh, and I also knew that he that uh, that they they weren't necessarily that versed in developing a relationship with the athlete to to the point that the athlete was a a collaborator, a co-instigator or whatever you want to call them. And then when I was when I was thrown into the fray to do the three, it was really uh, I think everybody was hoping that I would do something that would get Michael back into good graces with Nike in his own, in his own mind. Uh, he was always in good graces from Nike's perspective, but uh, he was ready to leave. He was ready to go to another company. And uh, I'm, I'm, I guess my timing was good that I came up with the Air Jordan 3 and he absolutely um, freaked out. And the, the rest is history. <laughs> I, I guess you could say the rest is history, although, you know, it didn't always go smooth. But it, but, you know, we became a team after the after the after he saw the three. And then uh, so I think every year he, he became he trusted me more and more because the shoes were just off the hook in terms of his abil- ability to play and be comfortable and and he wanted to wear a new shoe for every game and all that stuff and he was starting to win you know and he was starting to uh, you know in the three which is i don't know if anybody if your listeners care but he was the mvp he was the scoring leader he was defensive player of the year he won the all-star dunk contest i mean he did everything but win a championship you know in that three which had not happened yet he had not won all of those things before. And so, you know, it was a perfect storm. And then, uh, again, a kind of a launch pad into all those other shoes and all the championships. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was wild. I think, you know what? I'll bet you, you know, maybe when John John was first working with that shaper, 
Well, well, I'm sorry. His name is John, John Pizel. Yeah. Yeah. So Pizel, by the way, I have one of those one. I have a Pizel board, which is weird. But anyway, you know, it probably took John, John a little bit of time to, you know, sort of like, oh, this guy knows what he's doing. And then they, they develop a not only a, a collaborative working relationship, but maybe a friendship, too, on top of it all. So. So, you know, with that on that same topic, I was fortunate enough to shoot a couple Nike basketball campaigns a while back. And while that was going on, there used to be a private store in Soho in New York where you could be invited and go in and work with designers and and make your own sneaker. And I was lucky enough to be invited and, and I went in and what I found so fascinating is that most of the other people in there that were getting their shoes designed, everybody would bring these kind of inspirations and, you know, mood boards or whatever but they didn't bring color palettes and they didn't bring pieces of fabric. More often than not, it was songs or pictures of a landscape or a story, like these very abstract inspirations. Uh-huh. And, yeah. and I'm wondering, you know, when you first sit down to work with an athlete, do you take a similar approach? I mean, is the jumping off point for you often something that resonates on an emotional level with the athlete rather than showing them a piece of leather? Yes. Yes. The answer is yes, because, you know, when you're out there uh, looking for inspiration, you're also checking the, the boxes off on the criteria list for performance. And those things are all kind of like, you know, expected to be done right. And the shoe is supposed to be a better product than its predecessor. So you check those boxes off. I really didn't like getting into materials uh, and or colors for that matter, uh, until I actually had a, another story to tell. So there's two stories. Uh, one is okay. Here's here's how the shoe is going to be better than it than it, than its predecessor. Number two, here is what how what I found as inspiration, and it, and the story could vary from being inspired by a, a Lamborghini or a or a Ferrari, or possibly a song, or uh, a woman's fashion runway show, or, I mean, it could just, it was just all over the place, and I would, uh, I remember, like, coming in and talking to him about uh, Afropop Worldwide, an NPR radio show, and it was, uh, I saw just this beautiful poster in a, in a, in a record shop window, and that became the inspiration for how the shoe and the technology of the shoe and the performance of the shoe was going to blend with something that was going to make it also very interesting looking, you know? And yeah. then I would get a kind of an authorization from Michael then to pursue that. And then there would be materials and there would be colors. And so it was like maybe about the third or fourth meeting down the row before we started to actually look at those, those more visceral things, because uh, I wanted to be inspired by a story and then go from there. That's fascinating. So I, I was, I was reading a book recently called flux and it deals with these tools and strategies that you can use to kind of address and anticipate the unknowns of the future. And they gave two really interesting case studies. One of them was coffee. And they were saying in the late 60s, early 70s, your choices for coffee were basically a big tin can of Folgers uh-huh. or a big tin can of chock full of nuts. Like that was basically it. Sure. And they cited sneakers as well. I mean, basically you had Chucks 
and KEDS. And in broad strokes, that was pretty much your only options. Uh-huh. Those markets are obviously billion dollar sectors now, multi-billion dollar sectors. What I found most interesting about those examples is that both of those things grew to where they are today without a ton of emphasis on technology. Uh, granted, there's been major developments of sneaker manufacturing and technique and, and materials, but not nearly to the extent of, let's say, a cell phone, which needed a cellular network and satellites and microchips and this big infrastructure behind it. And it seems like, you know, with coffee and with sneakers, what was more important was, you know, really brilliant marketing and branding, but most importantly, like the fostering of a culture uh-huh. behind those items. Like, yeah. do you think that's yeah. a fair statement? Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think I think I do. I mean, there are definitely I don't want to uh, undersell the importance of, uh, of technology as it pertains to cushioning or safety, you know, not spraining your ankle, you know, basically being able to play 80 games, you know, whatever the pros play, um, you know, there's that. But I, I have to sort of agree with you that there's um, there's this more instant gratification around the love of sneakers. If you see it and it speaks to you, you then you want to find out more about it or maybe you purchase it. And I think if, with coffee, well, you know, you, you have a great, you know, espresso or a, or a really great brand of bean, of coffee beans or whatever. It has, it has a, a big impact on whether or not you're going to buy that again or, or get into it. You know, so so I think that's I think when we talk about um, more advanced technology, like and you use cell phones as an example, um, you know, that test, that stuff takes years and years and years to um, to sort of uh, I mean, Apple doesn't like turn out uh, a new a new phone or a new iPad every every six months or nine months or even a year. Um, they, it's it's usually longer than that. Our consumers they expect new stuff every, you know, pretty much every season. <laughs> you have to, like, I think, take a few steps forward, but you don't have a, you don't have usually enough time to, like, reinvent the entire notion of what a sneaker is. Yeah. And, um, and I would say that that has happened. Maybe the Hirachi was something like that was really different or, or maybe the back to the future sort of self-lacing shoes where there's a, was a lot of new technology and it really changed sneakers a ton. Yeah. I mean, it, those are, those are great examples. And like I said, I, I don't want to by any means diminish the technological advances and, you know, performance elements that you guys have added at Nike, but in broad strokes, just the development of a culture where getting a cup of coffee, quote unquote, is really just shorthand for spending time together uh-huh. or the entire sneaker culture, which is not really performance based. It's more like visceral, you know, it's, it's more of cultural based. Yeah. You know, I, I go back to the song. Uh, it was basically a remake of Summertime by DJ Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince. And they, they redo some, the song Summertime as a rap. Basically, they tell the story of a, of a, a summer day in, in Philadelphia. Uh, the song just tells you all, all throughout the song, kind of it's moving through the day. And they talk about sneakers. Like, I got, I got to go change my sneakers because we're going to go do some hoops and there's girls there. And that's storytelling about 
what it's like to be in, in Philly on a nice summer day and all the fun stuff and all the people, the, all the interactions. And there it just happens that sneakers just happen to be a pretty big part of that because you might switch your sneakers out to go do some one thing versus another. And, and it's all visceral. Yeah. It all, it's all it's all uh, about, you know, uh, feel and uh, and maybe uh, attra- being attracted to somebody else or whatever. I mean, those things are all real and important. And I think that's I think it's one reason why sneakers have gotten so big is that they're they're uh, they're not seen as these new technical innovations as much as they're uh, extensions of one's personality. And and you choose the right shoe for the right moment. Yeah. The right. Well, well, let me ask you this. So I'm not a huge sneakerhead, but I definitely have some friends that are. And, you know, in talking to them, there's one theme that that seems to be consistent. And that's if you were to stand next to them in front of their collection of sneakers, they could tell you for every sneaker, the price they paid, where they got them. And in many cases, like the backstory behind that sneaker, like there's a real story. Yeah a real story that's connected to those, to those sneakers. And, and I know you've talked a lot in interviews about the importance of the story from the design standpoint. Yeah. I mean, even like the, the Jordan 20, it basically has his life story graphics, yeah. you know, yeah. on the sneaker. And do you think that this, this relatively new notion of the sneaker with the narrative or the sneaker as a storytelling device, do you think that that was crucial to sneakers becoming the phenomenon that they have or the success of the Jordans? I personally do because I've seen it and done it in person or read about it. And then, of course, I've had these conversations with famous, famous athletes who would just simply tell you a story about how they always lusted after a pair of Jordan 8s because when they were younger, their parents couldn't afford them. They never got them. And then when they finally made it big in the major leagues or in the, in basketball or football, whatever, they were able to get them or, or they, or they might even ask for them because they were, they were maybe Nike athletes. And, and it's like these pinnacle moments in one's life, whether it's a positive one or a negative one, they're, they're, they're real memorable moments. Uh, a lot of times they're attached to a sneaker. And uh, my recollection is that growing up, uh, like you said, I either wore Converse or Adidas. And I don't, I don't have any, I, I, you know, they, they weren't special. They, they were just sneakers that you wore just to get, just to get through your day. Uh, but music, you know, music was um, was something that I remember. Like I, I hear a song and it reminds me of something important in my life. And I think that sneakers sort of, uh, I'm not going to say that music still doesn't do that. I think it does. But sneakers just have become another trigger for memories, good or bad. And so they, that means they have meaning beyond just being urethane foam and rubber and, and some kind of leather textile. You know what I mean? Can you point to a particular chapter or maybe even a particular shoe where there was a split where the sneaker became not this utilitarian thing that you wear on your feet, but like a tradable commodity, you know, because, yeah. you know, sneaker culture yeah. and, the, and the resale market, there, there's like this whole world out there. I was, I was doing some research. The, the Virgil Abloh one, that's an $80,000 sneaker, you know, the, the M&M Cement 3, $65,000 for that sneaker. Yeah. Like, how did we get yeah. there? Uh, you know, that's a, uh, I, I think that somewhere along the line, um, modern urban sort of youth culture you know just crossed a line and and sports crossed a line and they met and they blended 
So people were assuming, you know, but I think people were affected by who was wearing the shoe, uh, you know, like an influencer. The influencer could be uh, Michael Jordan or a Charles Barkley or, you know, Penny Hardaway or whatever. But also the, the coolest guy in your neighborhood might be an influencer. And so those things kind of affect people. You know, a lot of times there would be focus studies done, you know, with a new, like especially Jordans, because uh, Jordans were always so unique that the marketing group were, they were unsure whether or not they could sell the darn thing. And they would do focus groups and the focus groups generally were not successful. Those shoes were not loved by focus groups because they were so different. But then when you saw Michael Jordan wearing them or you saw LeBron wearing them or you saw Jay-Z wearing them on a stage or in an interview or it, it started to then change I think the way people thought about sneakers, it's like, oh, that guy is cool or that girl is cool. Therefore, that sneaker is cool. And and, and it just sort of kind of blew up. And, and I think that um, especially hip hop culture, too, that, uh, you know, that really blew up or blossomed at the same time that sneakers were. And you could say, well, you know, sneakers partly were uh, augmented by the, the growth of that kind of hip hop culture, or you could say kind of hip hop culture sort of was aided by these sneakers. I don't know. I mean, it's kind of there. I, I would love to, I would love to read a book that really, really dug deep into sort of trying to, trying to describe why all that happened the way it did. Uh, being, being limited edition, like, or being really difficult to obtain uh, drives the price for collectors just through the through the roof. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about that because we had on we had on Alex Corporan recently, and he was the store manager for the original Supreme Store for many years. And we also had on Damon Way, who is the co-founder of DC Shoes. And we we talked a lot with both of them about this relatively new practice, especially in streetwear, of intentionally limiting production supply and how that yeah. how that funds demand and and desire. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it. it it seemed like when, when you first started working on the Jordans, if you had the retail price and you could afford it, you pretty much had access to those shoes. Is that right? I mean, you guys didn't really well, like, traffic in, in doing limiteds. I think, I think in general that's true, but I do remember long lines when a shoe was going to drop and um, people not getting them because they were too far back in the line. Yeah. So. Uh, but, I mean, was that, the, that was incidental just because there was such demand, but that wasn't strategic on Nike. It wasn't, it wasn't strategic at all. I don't think we understood the phenomena for quite some time. We were, we were just trying to do great performing products that happened to just also look more interesting than anything before them. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, uh, you know, it was, uh, it, we, I was playing or I was playing this game of, uh, well, what what do I what do I think will capture the imagination of, of people, and what kind of stories can be told around the process as well? When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. 
Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Currently, or, you know, in the recent past, how, how involved are you in the marketing decisions in terms of determining the, the production numbers or the price point of any of the shoes that you work on? Zero. <laughs> Zero. I, I mean, um, and it's kind of purposeful on my part, but also I think there's just people that know uh, know more about that part of the business. But really, um, I always I, I have to have tell you that my strategy was um, I was there for the athlete. I was always there working to make a better product for the best athletes in the world, or the you know just everyday athletes. But that was job number one. Job number two was to make them, you know, cool and interesting, you know, and make them interesting. So that's a collaborative process. And you're always thinking that I'm working on this right now, but I also, this has to go well so then I can do it again and again and again. Uh, so that kind of um, uh, means that with any of the athletes, you do not want to be seen as a business person. You want to be seen and you want to be uh, to uh, authentically be a collaborator with that particular influencer. So from from the athlete's perspective, you want them to kind of perceive there being a firewall between your role as a creative and Nike's role of trying to sell these shoes. Absolutely. If they think that I, I mean, I always felt like if an athlete thought or, or an influencer could be a rapper or a you know, performer or somebody, I mean, if they asked, I always felt like if they actually thought that I was, I was more of a businessman than I was a, a co-creator, a collaborator or, a, or some kind of designer extraordinaire, that was way better. And they were more excited about just taking my calls and inviting me down to their house or, or whatever. And, and I, I think that had I also been part of that, those business decisions, could could affect somebody in a very positive way or a negative way. I mean, you know, you know, it goes both directions. And are there any? Can you cite any examples where maybe you really disagree with the way that Nike handled a shoe, like maybe a shoe that you were very proud of but nobody could get? And I mean, do you have like kind of a egalitarian approach that you want everybody to be able to have your shoes, or do you appreciate the kind of exclusivity that some of these sneakers have have adopted? Yeah. For, uh, I learned a long time ago to just let that water run under the bridge, let it go over the waterfall and not even think about it. And, and the reason for that is by the time a particular product makes it to the marketplace, and let's just say it's in a store, I'm deep into another design. You know what I mean? It's kind of like my job, I tried to just 
compartmentalize into being a performance product designer and a uh, what I would call kind of an artistic innovator, you know, which when you combine those two things, you get interesting products. And, and then I would just stop there. Nike's had some serious highs and lows over the course of its history. Sure. That doesn't really affect your approach to design? No. You, you, you stay away um, from that? No, not, not at all. And I, and I don't even pay attention to any other companies. I, I, I don't even look at their shoes. I don't look. I've always been uh, driven by, uh, by my own instincts and, of course, the collaborative process, uh, whomever that was. It just, I just really had kind of strict rules about that, and I just didn't, I just didn't want to be affected by it. And, uh, and it's been, been a successful approach for me. And even though, in the end, I might have disagreed with something kind of in, in hindsight, uh, at the time, I'm too busy. I'm, I'm too busy. I'm traveling around the world. I'm meeting with Drake one weekend, and you know uh, LeBron James the next, and Kobe Bryant a week after. You know what I mean? It's just, uh, and you know, I've got projects going on in all different directions, and uh, Olympic athletes too. And uh, you know, it's just, uh, it was just enough. It was just plenty. I would had plenty on my plate, and therefore I had to just basically let let everything else go. You know what I mean? So, um, so the answer to it is, uh, I just, I had really no interest or really any knowledge about what the prices were going to be, how many they were going to make or what the merchandising group and sales group at Nike were going to do. It's not that I didn't care. It did. I didn't think it needed, it helped me, you know, You wanted to insulate yourself from all all of that. Yeah. Uh, I think so. I think so, and I think I also wanted uh, again to be perceived as a as a friend or as a collaborator, not as a business person. Interesting. Your your path to become a shoe designer came through the background of architecture and also being an athlete yourself. Is that common or or rare at, at at Nike? And is that unique to the sneaker division? Like, in other words, if you if you're a designer in the apparel department, are you more likely to come from a background in architecture or from fashion? Because I mean, there's a lot of overlap between those disciplines, yeah. but it ultimately leads to the relationship between like problem solving and personal expression. I'd say it's kind of a mishmash. I I, I don't think you could say that there are uh, more fashionista type people at Nike and fewer uh, ex-athletes or a combination thereof. I, I think it's just all over the map. And I think Nike is, has, um, I believe there are seven or 800 designers at Nike. I have no idea how many of them have a, a sports or athletic background, or I don't know the percentage of those of that number of designers that are fashion driven or vintage fashion schools. I mean, I used to help hire uh, designers and we'd look, we tend to, we tend to look at industrial design as a, as a fertile ground for finding good footwear designers. Um, and if they had happened to have some interest in, or maybe some experience in sports so much the better, but it was never, it was never a, a solid requirement. You know, as, as someone with such a keen eye for design, I'm curious, like in your daily life, do you have examples of things that from a design perspective just really offend you? Like, you know, just random industrial design. Like, for instance, when Damon Way was on, he was talking about he he cannot stand the headlights and the taillights of the Toyota. And he's just it's he's like per- <laughs> he's personally offended by it, you know, and, and, and I'm wondering you know, do you have something similar that you encounter every day that just gets you? No, you know, I, I don't get 
um, I don't get that emotional about it. Uh, in other words, I, I, I can't say that I really love or really hate anything. I'm a good observer. I think most designers that, that are successful are good at observing. And uh, I'll, I'll say, this is how I'll look at it. Oh, that car has a friendly face. And that car has an angry face. Yeah. And I don't make a, a judgment about it. I just notice, you know, so... Cars with round headlights and a nice little grill. They're kind of like of eyes with a smile. Uh, and like Toyota, they're like slits and they're angled, you know, there's angled metal kind of giving them an eyebrow and kind of like they're more, it's a little more severe, a little more aggressive, I, I guess you could say. And, and I, don't, I don't pass judgment on it. I just say, oh, you know, that designer was, uh, or that group of designers was probably uh, trying to be aggressive and, you know, was looking, looking to, uh, to a certain segment of the population that would be turned on by that. And yet other designers are like, you know, I'm going to do a cute car, a car that people that's lovable by a just a different group of people. And so I don't I don't make I try try not to I try not to be judgmental about that. And uh, I I know a lot of designers, uh, architects and and product designers and fashion designers um, who are very judgmental. And I think maybe that helps them, but it, it, it never, it just never occurred to me that that was helpful. I mean, do you find that, that most bad industrial design is lack of attention to detail or just purposeful, but with bad taste? I, I think it, I think it could be all of the above. It could also have a lot to do with the decision makers above the designers and what they, the kind of um, impact they have on the design, because that does occur in a lot of companies. And, you know, a designer might have like have the product altered by someone else because higher up person decided that it needed it. Did you always, or do you now, do you have final cut, so to speak in the sneakers that you create? Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, I do. Uh, I think in my case, I think I had gotten successful enough when Nike was smaller and I developed, a, I wouldn't say a sort of armor or, or protectionism, but it just seemed like people tr probably just trusted my, my decision making more because of the success of the products. They were just uh, blowing up all over the place. Yeah. I'm looking back on your collection and, and all of the sneakers that you've gotten to work on. Is there one that stands out that you wish you could do different? Is there one, I don't want to say a mistake, but is there something that just like always just kind of gets under your skin and you wish you would have handled differently? Yeah. The, um, I'm, I've been asked this question in a different way, but uh, so, but I'm going to try and answer it also in a, in a more unique way. Um, the Jordan 15 uh, was a product I wish I had back. And the reason for that was, is because I had been through a lot. Um, I'd done so many Jordans by then. And my father had passed away. My mentor, Bill Barman, had passed away. Michael Jordan's father had passed away. I was overworked. I, I mean, I was, I, I just had so many other projects besides the Jordan projects. And, and I think I just was just, you know, I just didn't bring it, you know, it was like, 
mail. I just sort of mail. I didn't, I wouldn't say mail. I didn't mail it in, but I just think I could have done a better job with it. And, uh, it still ended up being a very unique shoe, but it's not one, it's not one that ever makes it into the pantheon of the best Jordans yeah. ever. Uh, and I think there's a good reason for it, which is, I think I was just worn out and, uh, sad. Well, I mean, I'm curious, is there a different way of looking at it? Cause rather than saying that you didn't put the effort or you mailed it in, I mean, is there, is there a chance that all of that sadness and darkness in your life and Jordan's life. Then when we talked about how important the story is, like did that creep into the story? Is that an effect? Or do you think it just, you were just too tired to, to do it how you, you should have? I wish I had it back so that I could, ha- I, I should have, and I could have used that darkness to finish that shoe off better. There was, the, you know, it was some, the, I don't know, it was an X-15 fighter plane or something. And, and also, I'd been looking at Prada shoes, and I don't know. I I was just sort of uh, kind of all over the map on that shoe, and and so then when I, I finished that shoe, and then I you know then immediately I jumped into the sixteen, and I started it, and I realized it, it, this one was going to be an even worse situation for me, and so then I asked Wilson Smith, very promising young designer, and actually probably the more appropriate person to sort of pass the torch to at this point. And he did, he did the 16. I started it, but then he, he really nurtured it along and then finished it. And, uh, and then there were a few other, there were other designers that stepped in. And then when it came to the 20, Michael called me up and said, you got to do the 20. So I'd had a, I'd had some, I'd, I'd had some time off from the Jordan line and I was ready to jump in and do something unique for that. So uh, switching gears for a second, how important is your physical environment to your design process? I mean, I know people can find inspiration from a pencil or a song or a cloud. It, it, does that really affect you on a, on a day-to-day level? Or could you find, if you had to under pressure, iPad and a stylus, you could go into a box and make a great creation? I think I could go into a box, but I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. My best work and I think almost all of my work is actually an affectation or a result of all the experiences that I've had in my life up to that point. So if I had uh, lived in a small community in the middle of nowhere for all, the, for all these years, I would have a, a smaller uh, backlog or palette of things to work from. And so I am purposefully a world traveler. I'm a participant in all kinds of crazy sports. I'll try anything. Um, I'm, you know, I'm a bad surfer and I've had some hold downs and I shouldn't be out. But, you know, all of those experiences or going to a concert and listening to somebody very weird and unique, all of those things end up in my subconscious mind. And when I sit down to design, I believe that those experiences affect whatever I draw, whatever I think of. And um, so if I'd been in a box all these years, um, I'd have precious few things <laughs> to be working from. So you can go into a box, but it's all of those resources from the entirety of your life that you can call upon when you're actually putting pen to paper. I mean, now I could go into a box because I have a pretty good backlog. But I think 
really, if you want to stay relevant as you get older, I'm, I'm 70 years old and people are like, what? You're that old? I mean, you can't believe it. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm 70, but I do stuff along with aside 30 year olds or 25 year olds. And I, I, I go to rap concerts. I mean, I snowboard off the top of mountains and ski and surf and put myself in all kinds of crazy situations. And I think that adds to, again, my ability to stay relevant and continue to do interesting work. So that's amazing. There you go. That's my final answer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We always like to end the podcast by asking the guests to plug something that they're not directly involved in, but they feel isn't really getting enough attention, whether it's a book or a movie or an artist, uh, a cause, or maybe a brand. Like, is there something that you want to kind of give some shine to that you, you want people to know about that really that you're really feeling right now? It always boggles my mind that really great work doesn't necessarily catch on for a variety of reasons, I suppose. But having said that, you know, I also know that great, great work needs it needs it needs to be appropriate for its time and place, but it also needs to help people move to a new place. So it's kind of a fine line between being appropriate, but just nudging its way forward. And, um, you know, I can think of a lot of products or maybe even music that kind of does that. So in the in the world of music, as an example, I feel like there are uh, jazz artists that uh, are not, not well-known or not understood and i i think that it really bums me out and that the greatest musicians of our time are you know kind of like have small small audiences and that's just a more of a general comment uh, i will sort of twist your question a little bit into a different mode which is uh jean baptiste who has um been a jazz artist and now he's he's becoming a, a more pop jazz and maybe a little bit of rock and blues out of new orleans I see him breaking that glass ceiling for uh, for performers like that, for artists like that. There's another artist from the same neighborhood with the same level of talent. Stage name is Trombone Shorty, and he isn't jumping that curb. You know what I mean? And um, Trombone Shorty is is amazing. He's I I, I I'm not going to judge him against Jean Baptiste, but. They're from the same neighborhood. They're the same age. I know, well, I know Trombone Shorty, and he's told me all kinds of stories about John Baptiste. And I didn't answer your question the way you might have hoped, but. No, those are, those are great examples because I think a lot of people are not familiar with either one of those artists or particularly Trombone Shorty. So they'll give yeah. people a chance to check them out. Yeah, they, I think that people should check out the the artistry, but they have soul and they have what Carlos Santana would say. They care about each note. They get to the heart of those notes, and they they're they're true artists. And it's not just a bunch of just it's not just a bunch of stuff, you know, that someone else wrote. I mean, they're doing they're they're really they're really feeling it and they have they have the, the ability to make it beautiful or interesting or something danceable or whatever so i think that that's kind of uh, something that i wish uh you know uh, i i wish more artists like that would get uh, a little more attention well tinker i want to thank you so much for taking the time out to have this conversation i know you're an incredibly busy guy and um just to clarify you stay out of marketing decisions, so you are not the person I should hit up for the next quick strike drop, right? <laughs> yeah, I would. 
I am always like, what the hell just dropped? I don't even know. Oh, yeah, God, I, I guess I, shoot, who can I call to get one of those? I mean, I don't even know. I have no clue. That, I find that hilarious. It's actually been a good strategy for me because I'm not affected by all that stuff. Trying to keep my files a little bit cleaner and more organized, but still full of color, you know, full, full of interesting adventure. But I don't know that thinking about all that other stuff would be would be helpful. Well, it's been such a pleasure getting inside your head and uh, I, I really appreciate it. And uh, I wish you all the best. Hopefully our paths will cross soon. You come highly recommended. Of course, I've seen I've seen a number of your uh, podcasts anyway. And uh, I want to thank you. It's been an honor to be uh, chosen to, to visit with you. And it's it's always fun. Uh, and this this will be yet another thing that I'll that will who knows I'll probably design something based off of this conversation you never know that's I'd be very honored thank you all right thanks for listening and a huge thanks to today's guest for dropping in if you enjoyed this episode do us a favor and take a minute to rate review follow or subscribe this episode of the plug was executive produced by Peter Buckingham with original theme music by Andrew Van Weingarten and Dan Drohan Logo design and branding by Italic at www.italic-studio.com. Sound design by Brad Worrell at Soundwag. And you can check out my photography at justinj.com. Thanks again, and be sure to tune in for future conversations.